Well, good morning. I want to welcome you here. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. We are joining together with churches all around the country and around the globe, specifically praying for for families like the one you've just seen, uh, for areas of the world where it is illegal to do what we are doing right here, uh, where, where they're not allowed to meet together to freely worship, as, as Amber pointed out, to actually meet in a public building to be able to worship Jesus is unheard of. This morning we're, we're focusing a little bit on Afghanistan. Afghanistan is the, the second uh, worst persecuted nation on earth, only second behind North Korea. Right now the Taliban is obviously in government and has very, very strict rules about anyone who would convert to Christianity. Some of you might know that religion is one of the things you must list on any government documents. And so right beside your age, height, weight is religion. And so anyone who is caught, who is uh, converting from Islam is at best detained. Oftentimes they're put together in, well, an insane asylum, a psych ward, because to switch from Islam is crazy. At worst, it's death. These are our brothers and sisters who are around the world, and so we want to spend some time this morning lifting them up in prayer. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We're grateful that despite all that people might do, Despite all of the challenges the church might face, ultimately it is not something that is shaken or put in peril even through governments that do not tolerate the preaching of the word of God. The amazing thing is that the church is still growing in Afghanistan, even amidst all of the challenges and all of the chaos that has gone forward. The name of Jesus is still worshipped there and we are so incredibly grateful. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to spend just a few moments in silence and invite you to actually just simply spend that time praying for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution. Pray that their strength uh, would not fail, that they would trust in Jesus through all of it. I love the little testimony that we just saw. And the woman's comment was, we have not paid anything yet. Pray that their faith remains strong in Jesus. Pray that many people hear the gospel. That even those who oppose the church might hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Repent and be forgiven. That is our prayer. Pray also that there would be safety. That the church could gather freely, sing, rejoice together. And let us be thankful for what God has so graciously given us. So we're going to spend just a few moments in silence. I'll invite you to pray in the quietness of your heart. And then I'll close us off at the end. Let's take just a moment.
Father, your word calls us to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. And so, Father, this morning we, we weep and we mourn for our brothers and sisters around this world who, who cannot worship you freely, who are even today hiding, secretly meeting in small groups, worshiping your name. Lord, I pray, Father, I pray, would you strengthen their faith? Give them an incredible measure of grace to be able to withstand all of the temptations, all of the pressures to turn away from your name. Father, I look forward to that day when we stand before your throne and we worship together as one people. Father, I pray would their faith encourage us, spur us on to use the freedoms that we have. Father, we're so grateful for them. Lord, I pray, would you work peace in these countries? Lord, in Afghanistan, as as a country is constantly rocked in turmoil, Lord, I pray, supernaturally, would you bring a peace to that nation that your name could be worshipped freely and openly? Father, I pray for those who seek to harm the church. Lord, I pray, would you open their eyes, open their ears, open their hearts to understand and know your gospel. Lord, would they experience the love and the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. May they turn to you and trust and be forgiven. Lord, I pray, continue to grow your church around this world. Strengthen us that we might serve you, that ultimately your name would be lifted up and glorified across the world. Father, that is our desire. That is why we meet here together. That is why Christians are meeting all around the world, because we long to see your name glorified. So, Father, I pray now, glorify your name amongst these churches. Might they be richly given all that they need to be able to worship you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to encourage you to continue to be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world. It is, uh, it's a challenging time, right? It is not an easy thing, and, and sometimes it's, it's a helpful reminder for us of the wonderful freedoms that we have, and, and I hope a bit of an encouragement for us to be using those, so, those amazing blessings that God has given to us. All right, well, this morning, I'll invite you to open your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 15. We're going to be continuing on with our series, Walking Through the Book of Acts, uh, this, this morning. Well, I don't know about you, but if these last couple of years have taught me anything, it is that it is difficult for people to agree, right? I don't know if any of you have seen that, but it seems like any kind of discussion is always a disagreement these days. There's always heated opinions, and people are on polar opposite sides of seemingly everything. It's also very interesting, is very rarely do we see people changing their minds, despite all of the controversy that keeps uh, coming around. It's difficult to get people to actually agree together, to work together. is not an easy thing. A couple of years ago, well, I guess a number of years ago now, uh, I was doing an internship at another church, and I was one of uh, a group of us interns. We were about six of us, and uh, we had an assignment that we had to do. We had to take the church's budget, and we had to cut it by about 40%, 30 to 40%. We had to cut this budget. But the thing is, this wasn't some random budget they pulled up. This was our actual church's budget. 
And so as this little sort of mock elder board, we had to come up with a way to cut out 40%. But the problem is you can't just nickel and dime that. You've got to make some big, big cuts into that. And so we had to, I mean, this was terrible. We had to fire Pastor Ben. And that was, that was hard because Pastor Ben was sitting in the room and we had come to a decision, actually, yep, you're the one who's getting fired. It was, it was a really difficult thing. It actually took us about uh, two or three weeks to finally get down to a budget, just the six of us working together, trying to get to what are we going to cut out? Because it doesn't feel like you can cut out anything. How do we agree on that? So after a couple of weeks of discussion, we finally got to that moment, but that was only half of the assignment. What we had to do then is then we called a a sort of a mock congregational meeting. About 20 people showed up from the congregation on a Wednesday morning to be our fake congregation, and we had to present our budget to them and have them vote to approve it. Right, So we had to cut out 40% and then try and present this in such a way that people would say, yes, we're, we're voting yes, that's a good budget. It didn't go well. <laughs> it went real bad, all right? It, we, we failed it. We did not get our budget approved. And in fact, as far as I know, no intern group had ever gotten their budget approved. Everyone failed this assignment. And that was part of the purpose of the whole thing. It was to show us, you know what? It's really hard to get people to all agree. Especially when there's, you know, passionate and and money involved and all the rest. People are invested in what's going on. It's hard to get everyone on the same page. The purpose of the assignment was to really show us that, but also to make us appreciate just how beautiful it is when people do agree. When there is actually unity in a group of people, it becomes such an amazing, incredible thing. And really, that's what our passage this morning is all about. We don't take unity for granted in the church, but it is a beautiful thing when it happens. This morning, we are picking up with what we looked at last week. If you were here with us, you'll know uh, John walked us through the first half of uh, Acts chapter 15. We're looking at this decision that the church was making. It was really a decision that is going to impact the future of the church. Mm, excuse me. Future of the church for the next 2,000 years. Right? This was a massive watershed moment in which determined really the church up until today. And if you were here with us last week, you might say, that's a really grandiose way of talking about a church council meeting. Right? Because that's what it was. It was essentially the church got together and said, we've got an issue to discuss. Let's figure out how to work through this issue. But, but really, that, that is what they were doing. They were setting a, a, a direction that the church would be on, and we are recipients of today. There was a problem they had. More and more Gentiles were entering into the church, and the question was, well, well, how Jewish do these non-Jewish people have to be to be in the church? How Jewish do they have to be? Do they have to eat the right food? Do they have to wear the right thing? Do they have to get circumcised? There's a lot of big questions that have to be answered, and so they're trying to work through this. Last week, we looked at their decision-making process, but this week, what I want us to see is really the reaction of the church. 
How does the church actually respond when this sort of decision comes out? How does the church work in unity together? So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to follow along with me. Acts chapter 15. I'm going to start in verse 22. And if you're able, I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of the word of God. It says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, uh, with, whom the follow- with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved uh, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they, went, so they were sent off. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement, and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul uh, said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through uh, Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. You may be seated. Amen. This is a, a beautiful passage as it reflects both really the, 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 the joy of being together as a church, but also the difficulty of being together as a church. Right? Both are really here in this passage as we see sort of this, this celebration of the gospel, but also the difficulty of trying to work with one another. Right? It's really focused on the, the response. How does the gospel unify the church together? Right? So we're seeing the church unified, and I'm going to say in three ways, as the church practices or rehearses the gospel together, as the church celebrates the gospel together, and finally, as the church works through difficulty together. Right? It's, it's a reality that at times there are disagreements in the church. So how do we handle that? How do we work through that? And ultimately, how do we see redemption and God's grace through that? So we're going to work through this passage, and that's really what I want us to, to come to understand. But let's start right back at the beginning. Right? We see there was a church council meeting that happened in Jerusalem. Right, It's quite a ways away from Antioch where this letter is going to be delivered. And so the church decides, all right, we need to send a proper letter. 
right? Here's the first ever church document that gets sort of sent out to uh, another church. And Luke goes through the trouble of actually recording this whole letter for us. And we kind of look at that and we're like, okay, why? I mean, essentially, you're just kind of repeating exactly what you just said in the first half of the chapter. Why are we going through all of this again, Luke? And yet, I think that's part of what we need to see. The church is meant to practice the gospel together. We're meant to go over it again and again and again, rehearse the gospel so that we know it more and more. Right? Our goal is to actually preach the gospel every single Sunday when we come together. That's what we do. We go over this again. Why? Because we don't leave the gospel in the church. We simply go deeper into it. And so they decide, all right, we're going to write a letter. We're going to write a letter to this church in Antioch and help them understand what the gospel really looks like. So verse 23, they begin, says the brothers both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Right? They start off actually very purposefully. Do you notice that? It's not just one sort of small faction from the church that is going to be sending this letter. No, this is all the elders and the apostles and the whole church together has come into agreement and unity on this issue. And that's what we're going to hear. Verse 24, they, re, or they continue. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, it seems like a little bit of preamble, doesn't it? Like, okay, come on, get to the point. Yes, I understand these are the guys who are showing up with this letter. But you need to just put yourself in in their shoes for for just a moment and realize just how unbelievably confusing this all would have been. See, what was going on is there's a bunch of Gentiles who have just come into the church. They've placed their trust in Jesus. They had never heard of this guy before, right? Right? Guys showed up in their town and they started telling them, hey, there's this Jewish guy named Jesus. And they go, okay, what's so special about him? Well, he was actually God himself. Wow. I mean, that, that's pretty amazing. What happened to him? Well, he died on a cross. He was publicly executed. And you think, that doesn't sound great. So actually, that, that was all part of why God came. That's why Jesus came. He came to die on that cross so that he might take the punishment for our sins that we might be made right with God. And if you trust in him, you will be forgiven. You'll live forever with him. And these Gentile Christians are going, wow, I didn't know about this. I always thought there was a God, and now I can be right with him. And they come into the church. And as they do, they're starting to, to read their Bibles. Right? It's the Old Testament at this point. And they're starting to, to learn about what God has been doing amongst the Jewish people for, for hundreds and thousands of years, the promises that God had made, the blessings that's pouring out. And they're going, wow, I'm part of that now. This is amazing. This is what God has done for me. And as they continue to learn, well, some some new people show up. And these are guys, I mean, they have been spending their entire life studying the Bible. They have it memorized. I mean, they have massive books of the Bible all memorized. And they are coming in and they're starting to teach a little bit. and, And they're saying a few things that starting to make you worried. 
These guys know their Bibles really well, and they're saying there's something important called circumcision that everyone who wants to be accepted before God needs to be circumcised. And you're going, really? Do we have to eat kosher and do all these other things? Is, is that what I, needs to happen? I thought I just trusted in, in, in Jesus. Now I've got to do all this other stuff, but what do I know? These Gentile Christians have just heard about the guy. They've just opened their Bibles, and now people who have been reading them apparently for their entire lives have come up with a whole list of rules and things that you've got to do. And the question is, what is going on? I heard Paul say it was just faith. I hear these guys saying, I've got to do a lot extra. So which is it? What do I do? This isn't a small issue. This is whether or not God will accept me. Right? This is a moment of worry, of confusion. And so the apostles, the elders in Jerusalem, as they come to this decision, they write this letter to them because they realize how utterly confusing and even scary this moment is. And so they write to them, and they say, well, actually, the gospel is exactly what was preached to you at first. Acceptance before God is dependent on faith alone. Verse 28 says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. The decision we saw last time that we really spent most of our time looking at was that the Gentiles do not have to add anything to the good news of Jesus to be saved. And their declaration is, that is what God has declared, and we're simply agreeing with God. God has accomplished all of salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. We don't have to add anything. Jesus did all of it. He took all of our sins. He dealt with all of them on the cross. And so we simply trust in him. We don't have to now do a bunch of other things to be right with God. We're simply trusting in Jesus. Same gospel we proclaim here today. If you're here today and you trust in Jesus, that his death on the cross is paid for your sins, you do not have to add anything to that. And so part of what Luke is writing to the church, or or, sorry, these apostles and Luke is recording, is the church going over this again and again and again. They need to know the gospel so well that they're not going to be shaken by any different doctrine. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. The call of the church is to speak the gospel so well and so often that we can actually discern right from wrong, from when someone is speaking something off. Do you know the gospel that well? Do you know your Bible that well? That if someone comes up to you and says, well, you need to be baptized in order to be saved, do you know why that's wrong? That's not what the gospel teaches. We are called to be baptized, but our baptism does not save us. Right? We need to know the gospel so well that we can spot the fraud at a moment. That's part of why we make it a point to preach the gospel every Sunday. 
in our sermons, in our worship, in our prayers. We want the gospel to be heard and practiced, rehearsed over and over again, that we might know the truth. That when you show up on Monday morning to work and you hear something else, that a little light bulb goes off in your mind and says, well, that's not right. And actually, now I can speak. I I can share the gospel. I can begin to, to tell other people because I've known it so well that it's beginning to flow out of my life. You might say, okay, but hold on. Because you just read that verse and it sounded like there was a bunch of other requirements there. What exactly is going on? Isn't that really the exact opposite of what you just said? Again, we looked at this one last week because the question is not just uh, how are we saved, but actually how do we get along together? How does the gospel impact our unity together? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. There's nothing else that we are adding to that. But they recognize for this Jewish group and Gentile group to actually come together and work together, to live together, means actually, means actually we need to give up a few things. See, he's talking about food that was sacrificed in idol temples that would have been around blood uh, being been strangled or have to, having to do with a lot of sexual immorality that went on in these pagan practices. All that, if you had been raised in a Jewish home, you would have been finding very, very repulsive. This isn't an addition to the gospel. It's a comment on how the church can actually work together. See, unity in the church depends on the true gospel being known and practiced why it gets repeated as often as it does throughout these chapters is because this is an important thing for us to know for what we do as a church and even as Christians individually. But here's what I think this passage is pointing us towards, is that knowing it just by itself, we do need to practice and rehearse and go over the gospel so that we do know it well, but that isn't the end. That's not the end goal that we're really looking for. The church practices the gospel together and the church celebrates the gospel together. This is really, I would argue, the main point of this whole passage. It's not simply to repeat what was already decided, but to look at really the response of the church to it. Look at verse 31. When they had read it, this letter, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The response of the church is joy and celebration, right? Put yourself back in the shoes of that newly converted Gentile Christian who has no idea what's all going on in the Bible, but you came and you heard actually your salvation, your acceptance before God is only dependent on whether or not you trust in Jesus Christ. That is a reason to rejoice, right? That means there are no other... uh, stipulations. There's no other barriers you have to go through. It's simply, do you trust in Jesus Christ? And so they are rejoicing. They are celebrating. This is a party after this because this is good news. Verse 32 says, Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. After they had spent some time, they sent them off in peace uh, to the brothers, to those who had sent them. Right? Do you notice what happened in this church? They're celebrating, they're rejoicing, they're encouraging one another, they're strengthening one another, and they're spending time together. I don't know about you, but that sounds good, doesn't it? 
The word gospel literally means good news. And sometimes I worry that we've heard it so often that it's simply become news. That we've almost dropped how good the good news actually is. So is that our response? Do we celebrate the gospel? Does it cause us to rejoice and enliven? Or have we come on a Sunday morning and thought, well, this is simply another lifeless meeting that we come to and walk through the, uh, walk through the paces? Paul writes to the Philippian church, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord uh, and of one mind. Paul says, look, when you are unified in the gospel, it leads to more joy. It leads to more joy. So let us actually celebrate the gospel together. Right? We can know the gospel, but unless it moves and transforms our hearts, it's of no value. Right? This was Jesus' complaint against the Ephesian church in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, he writes, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and have found them to be false. Right? You know the gospel, but this I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. The good news was just news for them. Right? Don't leave the goodness out of the good news of Jesus. The church is the place to celebrate what God has done together, to encourage one another in our walk with Jesus. And look, I know it's hard to do that now. Right? It's hard to smile behind a mask and, and actually show that. But there is nothing that has happened in the last two years that has changed the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven. That has not changed. Our reason to celebrate and rejoice has not left us. Tell one another, what has God been doing in your life? Share a little bit. What has God been teaching you? What have you read in your Bible? How have you experienced God in a new way in the last week? Come together and actually talk about those things. We want to be encouraged. And as much as it's, it's fine to talk about work in the weather, there's so much more that we have to talk about here. Talk about what has God been doing in your life. Hear me, that is more encouraging than anything else. Any compliment that, that can be given to someone, I want to hear. I want to hear what God has been doing in your life. I want to hear the questions you have, even the struggles and, and all that. I want to know about it because I want to be able to pray with you and I want to see God at work together. I want to celebrate the gospel with you. How has the good news of Jesus caused you to rejoice this week? Encourage someone with it encourage someone, celebrate the gospel. I know it's easy to talk about all the other things, but it is better to talk about what God is doing. The church is the gathering of people to celebrate the good news. And really that's what happens in the book of Acts as this letter gets delivered. They are celebrating. As the gospel is rehearsed and practiced, the church responds with celebration and joy. But here's where our story takes a bit of a turn, doesn't it? 
story changes a little bit. You, we, we were kind of flying at the you know 10,000 foot view, looking at the church and the beauty and the wonder of what it looks like to be unified together. And then sort of the end of the chapter kind of nosedives us into the ground. Oh, right. Not everything works out well. The church is in the real world where it is difficult to be together. The church is difficult together. And I know it seems like we're ending on on kind of a low note, and in one sense it is. But do not miss God's grace in the midst of the difficulty. Look back with me, verse 36. It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Okay, so it starts out really good. Paul says, hey, we just went on this giant journey all through chapters 13, 14, right? We visited, planted all these churches. Let's go back, see how they're doing, right? We've got this letter from from the council in, in Jerusalem. Let's go and encourage them with the gospel. Verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia. And had not gone with them to the work, and there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. It just seems like such a failure after the amazing unity that we've just witnessed, doesn't it? Isn't the, isn't the unity of the gospel enough? How come Paul and Barnabas can't work together that they would actually argue to the point where they say we have to go our separate ways? This is the last time we hear of Barnabas in the book of Acts. It's such a realistic picture of the church, isn't it? How many churches have split because apparently they couldn't work together? Isn't the gospel enough to unify us? How do we actually respond when it seems as though churches, Christians, can't work together? And as much of... uh, Part of this story is certainly sad. It actually gives us a tremendous lesson in how the gospel can still unify us, unify us even in disagreements. When Paul and Barnabas decide to go on this trip, Barnabas says, hey, let's bring Mark. Let's bring Mark along with us. And Paul looks at him and says, are you sure? Because last time they brought him. If you remember back in Acts chapter 13, they brought Mark along. And before they'd even gotten halfway through, Mark left. It's hard work, right? They were, they were working hard and Mark basically said, this is too much. I need to go. And so Paul is looking and saying, look, this guy is not ready. He's not ready yet to go on this kind of trip. And Barnabas is looking and saying, well, how is he going to get ready unless we give him a chance? What if we slow down and actually help him and actually help him grow and mature through this process? And they start butting heads. Paul says, look, it's just too much for the guy. Barnabas says, ever the encourager, but let's give him a shot. Eventually, they get to the point where they have to separate. Now here, notice, please, neither one of these things was a bad Uh, Neither one of them was making, if you will, an evil choice. It's not as if Paul was being wrong or sinful in what he was looking at. No, there was simply practical differences in their aims. But here's where we see, actually, the unity of the gospel shine through really well, even in their disagreement. See, Luke records for us, 
a bit of an argument from silence, but I think it's, I think it's valid. Luke records no mention of backstabbing. There's no gossip going on. There's no slander. There's no insults being lobbed at anyone. And the church isn't divided over this. Paul and Barnabas have simply different aims in this. They're both certainly passionate about what they are looking for, but they are not willing to compromise the unity of the church over it. Paul writes in, uh, in the book of Ephesians, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. See, I think that's exactly what's happening here. Here's a disagreement between two brothers, two uh, fellow soldiers in the Lord, and they are walking together. They have different aims at the moment, but they will not give in to temptation to sin against each other. Right? The gospel actually should impact how we disagree. It's okay to have a different opinion, but stay away from the temptations to sin in that disagreement. Barnabas ends up taking Mark along on the trip that Paul had originally planned. Goes back to the churches and Paul ends up partnering up with Silas who returns from Jerusalem. The two of them end up going on a journey. Very interesting. In fact, even the church blesses them and kind of ordains them as they go out. They left behind them not a trail of carnage, but a unified, solid church who is sending out now not one, but two missionaries. Like I said, this is the last time we're going to hear about Barnabas in the book of Acts. In fact, for the most of the New Testament, he's rarely mentioned again. But this isn't the last time we hear about Mark. In the book of 2 Timothy, it's the very last book that Paul writes. He's writing it just before he is going to be executed for preaching the gospel. In that book, he writes to his student Timothy, and this is what he says. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. There's an amazing transformation that happens between these two passages. Paul has not held a grudge. He's not looking back over a destroyed relationship. He says, bring Mark because he is a valuable servant of God. The unity of the gospel actually prevailed over their disagreements and their differences. Forgiveness ought to be a mark of our unity. Paul writes to the uh, Colossian church, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. See, the church exists in the real world. There are going to be disagreements and difficulties. But that does not define us. The gospel must define even how we disagree with one another, where we still look towards one another with love, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and forgiveness. See, when we do that, we show there is something greater than ourselves that we have our eyes focused on. See, the unintended result of this disagreement is, like I said, we now have two missionary journeys going. Instead of one, now two missions go forward. And isn't that exactly what we would expect God to be doing? God who is sovereign over all of these things is taking something bad and using it for good. 
The mission of God is far more important than their disagreement. Paul didn't try and stop Barnabas from going. Barnabas doesn't try and slander Paul. They leave to continue the mission of God together. The unity in the gospel in sharing more about Jesus still defines what they do. Yeah, it's difficult to work together. It can be difficult in a church. But when we fight for that unity in the gospel, even in our disagreements, God is ultimately glorified and the gospel is known. The church is meant to come together to practice, celebrate the gospel, and even unify through difficulty that the good news of Jesus is proclaimed. That is our goal. That is our aim. So what are we to do? Or to let our gathering be defined by the good news of Jesus. And how we speak, how we practice the gospel with one another. Whether this is the first time you're in church or the 10,000th time that you have come. There is forgiveness for everyone who trusts in Jesus. His death on the cross, his resurrection to new life is our great hope that we are made right with God. That is what we come together to proclaim and work through. That is what we come together to celebrate and encourage one another to continue on, be faithful and know, to celebrate the amazing things God has done in our lives, to strengthen one another. And even if there is disagreement that our unity in the gospel is not compromised, but God is glorified. See, that is why we exist. Rehearse the good news, celebrate the good news, and let us proclaim the good news. Let's pray together. Father, we are so incredibly grateful. Lord, that it is not up to us to try and, and make some kind of unity amongst ourselves. But Father, you grant us your Holy Spirit to bind us together, to call us to one another, to soften our hearts, to fix our eyes on Jesus and on him alone. Father, I pray, might our gatherings, might our church be always defined by the gospel that this good news would be preached, proclaimed, that it would be loved and celebrated. Father, that we would long to hear more about who you are and what you are doing in the word of God and in our lives. Father, I pray, keep us from disunity. Keep us from disagreements that might threaten to harm our witness to the world, but Father, that ultimately you would be glorified in all things. Father, our desire is your good news is known, celebrated, and loved. We ask these things in your name. Amen.